Jesus, please help my father um, speak what you want to speak and with the, help the Holy Spirit guide him and tell him what he needs to say so all people can understand it. If you say amen. All right. Let's get to it. Can everybody hear me? Hi, all. Oh, yeah. I don't know what to do with this. I'll take it. All right, so we are going through 1 Samuel. But obviously, uh, it's Good Friday, so we're going to take a break in 1 Samuel, and we're going to do a Good Friday sermon. Now, I was talking to uh, one of my best friends in the world, and I said, I am going to do a Good Friday sermon from Revelation. She said, how in the world are you going to do a Good Friday sermon from Revelation? And I said, watch. All right, so let's see if this if we can make this work. Now, here's a question. This is a question that uh, is the ultimate question. It's a question that the Bible wants to answer. It's the question that is happening in our election. It's the question behind every war in human history. And it's also the question that every good book, every good fantasy novel seeks to answer, every good movie is about this one question. All of life is about one question. Question has three words in it. Does anybody know what the question is? Who am I? Will rule. Okay? Who will rule? That is the question that all of us from the beginning of time uh, are seeking to answer. We saw this in the Garden of Eden, right? God said to Adam and Eve, He said, Hey guys. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. The whole planet is yours. And our first parent said, uh, well, yeah, awesome. But there's this one fruit that God told us we couldn't have. Why? Because God was telling Adam and Eve, hey, guys, listen. Even though you have dominion over the earth, I have dominion over you. I will rule. And the Satan showed up and said, I mean, come on. Really? You're going to let God rule you? See, that was the ultimate issue with the, with the fruit, wasn't it? Who will rule? And then we saw throughout all human history, right? We, we've been doing this with the, our good friends, the Israelites. The Israelites had God as their king, didn't they? And they said, man, we don't want God as our king. We want a human rule like everybody around us. Everybody around us has a human ruler. So we want a human king. So their answer to the question, who will rule, isn't God. It's we want a human king. So God says, all right, cool, I'm going to give you a human king. There's Saul. Next week you're going to see what an abject disaster that turned out to be. But in the wisdom of God, even though he gave us Saul as a king, he set in motion the path for the actual true king to come among us. When Jesus Christ came to the earth, the first message he preached was about this question. Who will rule? Because what Jesus said was repent for the kingdom of what? God. So Jesus' answer is, well, God rules. That's the answer. You know, Lord of the Rings, not, what's the guy's name? Sealed door. Who's the Lord of the Rings person? I don't know. Aragon, whatever. Okay? Alright? The ultimate question is, who will rule? Jesus shows up, says the kingdom of God, meaning God is the ruler. God is king. Now, as Christians, we believe that Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. You say, okay, what in the world does this have to do with the cross? 
how does the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus that, that Brian just read to us from Luke, was it Brian, Luke? Yeah. What does that have to do with the cross, and how in the world are you going to tie that into the book of Revelation? I don't know. We'll figure it out by the end. Now, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I was reading this a couple days ago. Yeah, that's really cool. <clears throat> so, Revelation 19 is uh, a book of war, really, okay? It's the lamb versus the beast. It's the dragon versus God. It's the people that dwell on the earth versus the saints. It's the Antichrist versus the, the Christians, whatever you want to say, okay? It's a book of war all throughout. Now, chapter 19 is bringing, is landing the plane, it's bringing it to a close. There is a ton of imagery in the book of Revelation, and no matter what you believe about how Revelation works itself out, right, uh, the end goal is that Jesus wins. Yeah, everybody agrees with that, hopefully. That's the goal, Revelation chapter 19. Now, here's John. John the Apostle saw Jesus, uh, walked with him for three and a half years. John was actually the only disciple that was there um, when Jesus was crucified. Now, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse! Exclamation mark. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, there is a lot of imagery here that John is giving us. And John is assuming that we know our Bible. So, let's look at this description of Jesus and see if there is any relationship to Good Friday. The first thing we see is a rider on a white horse called Faithful and True. John goes out of his way to say, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now remember I said, from all human history, every war has been waged to settle that question, who will rule, right? And here's the deal. Every single war in human history has been fought by people who do it for unrighteous, unjust reasons. I'm sorry, but if you believe that uh, our great nation has engaged in warfare and the many wars that we have engaged in for righteous, purely just reasons, i got a bridge for you in Brooklyn, meet me after the service. Brian, we will never have to raise money again. Listen, human beings, when we decide to get violent and go to war, do so for unjust, unrighteous reasons. Now, um, when we look at Nazi Germany, for example, are you saying that we weren't right to go after the Germans? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that anytime we engage in war, innocent people get killed. Is that not true? Yes, we overthrew the Nazis. We also killed thousands of innocent people in the process. Okay? We bombed Hiroshima and killed thousands of civilians in the process and gave many more thousands horrible, irreversible diseases. Okay? So, uh, Augustine is a church father I talked about him last week. 
and he had this thing called Augustine's Just War Theory. And he had all these, you know, little stipulations and stuff. Okay, this is going to create a just war. There's never been a just war, ever. Amen. Because we're the ones that are fighting it, and we have sin in our hearts. So John goes out of his way to say, yeah, but there's somebody coming who's waging war in righteousness and in justice. And when he wages war, there will be no innocent people killed. We say, oh, that's good. That's very good. No innocent people killed. Praise Jesus. That should make you scared. Why am I saying that should make you scared? Because there are no innocent people in this room. None of us are innocent. All of us, when we're judged by God's righteous standard, are guilty. You know, it's one of the most famous, often quoted verses, and the verses that we quote the most are the ones we don't really believe. The wages of sin is death. We quote that verse all the time. Every Christian knows that. But none of us truly, truly believe that when we sin, we deserve to die. That's what the Bible is saying. And it doesn't say the wages of sins, plural, is death. It doesn't say the wages of really horrible sins is death. It says the wages of sin is death. Now, do you remember when we talked about this question in the garden, who will rule? How many sins did Adam and Eve commit before God gave them both the death penalty? One. One sin, right? So look, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So the one here to say, this is good. This is a guy who's going to judge in righteousness, pure righteousness, and pure justice. But on the other hand, we say, ah, <coughs> because if a just, righteous, pure, holy God judges me, I am getting the death penalty. Here's another question. Most of our images of Jesus are of a nice, gentle, docile. You see, I'm quieting my voice to match what I'm describing. Nice, gentle, quiet, docile guy who heals sick children and carries old lambs. You know, I remember growing up, you know, seeing this picture of Jesus. He had this old lamb, you know, on his shoulders. I thought, oh, that's Jesus. How do you go from that guy to the guy who's making war on a horse? And here's a question that the Bible constantly forces upon us. Do you want Jesus for all that he truly is? Or do you want Jesus for the vision of how you want him to be? That's the question. You know, a guy like me, I grew up in the Bronx. We're fighting, blah, blah, blah. So, here, you know, I've shared this with a couple of people. The Gospel of John is my favorite gospel. And I'll read all the way up to God, John chapter 19. And then I stop. And then I start over. You know why? Because from John 19 on down, he's getting beaten and crucified and spit on and mocked. And I don't like seeing Jesus like that. You go, oh, that's, you're really loyal. You really love God. And then God showed me. It's like, it's not because you love me, man. It's just because you're so prideful that you don't want to see me in that condition. Because that would mean that you have to live that way. See, I was rejecting a side of Jesus I didn't like. And many of us are like this. When you see Jesus going to war, you want to immediately in your heart, right now, you're rejecting this idea of Jesus who would go to war and go slaughter people. But when the text says, he treads the winepress, Stevie, this is your big debut, 
When it says he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, John is drawing from a passage in the Old Testament. Now, Steve, he's going to stand up and he's going to read with a loud voice what John is referring to in Isaiah chapter 63. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden... So, okay, okay. so there's this guy, he shows up, and the author is asking him, why are your clothes red, man? Now here's the answer. This is Jesus talking, according to John. Listen to what he says. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the, my year of redemption had come. Okay. So, the person goes up to Jesus and says, Why are your clothes red? And Jesus says, Well, I just got back from treading the winepress of the wrath of God, and the blood of my enemies splattered on my garments. That's why my garments are red. That's what it says. Now, immediately, some of you are saying, Jesus would never do that. He would never, never do that. Not my Jesus. I hear that all the time. My Jesus. He's everybody's Jesus. Whether you love him or not, he's your Jesus, because he made you. Man, are we going to take Jesus for who he really is, or are we going to take Jesus for what we want him to be? Now, let's keep reading and figure this out. How do we reconcile the guy who carries the lamb with the guy who is so... Um, brutal that the blood of his enemies is all over his jacket. And we got to figure this out. Now, watch this. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, fire in the Bible generally has two connotations when it's used uh, metaphorically. The first one is the fire kind of burns away the dross, right? And it shows what's really left. You know, when it talks about the testing, it talks about the fire of testing. And here's the deal. This is showing us that Jesus sees through us. Like he can look at you and see through you. Right now you're looking at me and you're seeing a person preaching the Bible. You go, oh, that's a real spiritual guy. Some of you are saying, I know you, you're not a spiritual guy. Okay? You're, we have perceptions of people. Or we can front to people. We can act like we're a certain way and we're not a certain way at all. And when we hear that Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire, what it's saying is, man, I can burn right through that and see to the core of who you truly are. And all of us, one of these days, are going to have to stand before this man with those eyes, and he's going to see us and know us completely, perfectly, and there will be no hiding from him. So when we hear about a man who's got eyes like fire, in justice he wages war, what it's saying is anything that he says about you is going to be absolutely true. Because he knows you, all the fronts, all the religious things that we can throw out, any, all the sermons that we preach, he can see through everything and see to the core of who you really truly are. Let that sink in for a moment. Now, the book of Song of Solomon is, uh, has always been a favorite of uh, the Christian church. And it's about a husband and a wife or, you know, whatever. It's about love and pursuit and all the rest of it. 
Um, many commentators have seen an analogy between Christ and the church in this, in this book. Now, watch this passage, and let's think about flame of fire, right? So here it goes. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Now watch it. Its flashes, this is love, are of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Did you catch that? So the, the author says, love is like fire. And then it says, like the flame of the Lord. Meaning that the origin of love is from God himself. That burning love that lovers have for one another originates in God himself. So when it says his eyes are a flame of fire, yes, it's talking about God's testing and knowing us, but it also speaks of God's infinite, intense, burning love for his people. You know, some of you, you grew up in crazy environments. You know, if you did something well, people liked you. If they did, you didn't do something well, they don't like you. You say what people want to hear, they like you. You don't say what they want to hear, they don't like you. You know, you just grew up in this performance mentality. And you have this view of God that one day Jesus loves you, the next day he doesn't love you. Or some spiritual leader makes some whatever comment about your spirituality. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, God must not love me. Because Andrew said something about me. Good night. Man, Christian, when you stand before Jesus and see his eyes for you, in that moment, you will never, ever, ever, ever doubt again that you are loved. Jesus loves you with an intensity that you have no idea of. And I'm fully convinced the reason he doesn't fully reveal it here is because if he did, you would collapse and die of joy and fear that he loves you that much. Man, he's got a flame of fire. He's been burning. Now, think about this. When did Jesus start loving you? Forever. The fire has been burning forever. You know, I was talking to one of my friends a couple days ago. I was like, why do Christians die? You know why Christians die? Because Jesus can't stand to be away from them for one more second. That's why we die. That's why we leave this earth. You open your, if you close your eyes for the last time and you open them for the first time, man, you're going to be looking into the eyes of some intense, crazy love of a God who has been watching you since before you've been born. You say, how did he do that? I don't know. Okay? Before you were born, I knew you. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he knows you exist. It means he knows you. Yes, he can test you and see you through all that craziness. But in spite of your craziness, he loves you with an intensity that is not going to change. You know, we were talking about going through uh, fasting, you know. Some people are fasting. I said, listen to me. You know, if you complete your fast, it doesn't make God love you more. And if you fail your fast, it doesn't make God love you less. You see, but this is how we are. We're performance-oriented people, man. We are performance-oriented people. That is not the gospel. No, this God who's going to judge in righteousness is also the same God who has burning eyes of fire of love for me and you. What did Jesus say? The eyes are the window to the what? Okay, the soul of Jesus is on fire in love to you. I wonder if any of us truly believe that. Now, let's keep reading. So those eyes are on fire because he can test, he can see through all our craziness in our lives and our fronts to people, but it's also intense, deep, burning love. 
Now, let's keep reading. And on his head are many diadems. You know, a diadem is a uh, is a basically another word for crown or whatever, right? Now, Jesus has many crowns. What's the point of saying many crowns? Here's why. Uh, this is answering the question, right? Remember I said the first, the, the ultimate question is, who will rule? Who will rule? Thank you. One person's listening. <laughs> who will rule? Answer Jesus. Now, what's the point of many diadems? What's the point? You know, you, you go to heaven and you see Jesus walking around with 50 crowns on his head. I think, I think this is what John is trying to say. You know, pagans, they used to have a god of war. You know, Mars was the god of war. And then you had the god of wisdom, and you had the god of this, and you had the god of that, and the god of this, and the god of that. And what John is saying is Jesus has them all. He's God of all of it. He's king of all of it. So he, you know, if there's a crown in America, he's got that crown. There's a crown in Lewis, he's got that crown. He's crown of all of it. Just so you understand. But John wants us to realize that this Jesus, with these eyes, man, he's the king, he's a ruler of everything. And, you know, in our, in our Christianity, sometimes we miss this. So you come into church, you go to church, now he's the king, because you're in church. Then you go out to work, you go to school, he's not the king. Well, if your school has a crown, Jesus is wearing it, okay? And if your job, your work, whoever is the little king in that place, Jesus is the king over that place. He has many crowns. doesn't just have one, in the sense that he rules over everything in every sphere. We need to teach our children this, by the way. You know, one of the worst things in the world we can do is indoctrinate our children in this crazy religiosity that when we come to church, we're ruled by Jesus, but then the rest of the week is ours. He gets one day, you get six. You get to rule over six, he gets to rule over one. Not true. Now, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, in the Old Testament, a person's name reflected what? Personality. Personality, what else? Character. Identity. Identity, character, nature, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what does it mean that nobody knows it but himself? We say we don't understand Jesus' character, we don't understand his identity. Here's what it's saying. It's saying that, yes, you can know his identity, yes, you can know his character, but to fully and completely have total knowledge of him? No, you don't. This is saying he's an infinite, incomprehensible God. You know, in the Old Testament, Jesus showed up to Samson's parents. And uh, at the end of the, 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 the discussion, the guy says, what's your name? And Jesus said, why do you want to know my name? Seeing as how it's wonderful. Now, the Hebrew word for wonderful actually means incomprehensible. My name is incomprehensible. You cannot comprehend me. You know, many of our theologies are designed to make Jesus' name comprehensible. Stop doing that. Let me explain something to you. If your theology of Jesus is such that you completely and totally understand everything, you get the wrong Jesus. Because if we're saying he's the eternal God, then he should blow your mind. As a matter of fact, it should be a common occurrence when you're reading the Bible where you just go, Ah! Who are you? This is so familiar with Jesus all the time. Just familiar with him. Jesus is your homeboy. 
Let me explain something to you. John met Jesus. He walked with him for three and a half years. You know what happened to John when he got a glimpse of him on the Isle of Patmos? He felt like a dead man. Why? Because he's like, man, this is an angle of Jesus I did not know. I did not see. Even though John was on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, Jesus took three of his disciples and he said, ah, look, here I am. Okay, I'm actually glorious. Not just the, the guy in the sandals, but that. But even then, when John saw Jesus in Revelation, man, he completely passed out. And here's the, the most amazing thing about the fact that Jesus' name is wonderful or incomprehensible. What it means is that you should never be bored as a Christian. Because every single day that you're alive, and you have this book, and you have this Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to find something new about him that you did not know before. Or there's depths about him that you did not know before. Depths of his love, his justice, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace that you did not know before because his name is incomprehensible. This, this is your solution to boredom. So there's a sense in which being bored is sinful. Because if you're bored, it means you're bored with Jesus. Let's talk for laws, my Arabic friends say. God help us. All right, let's keep going. Now, here's where Good Friday comes in. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, here's what's interesting. I read Isaiah. No, CB did. We read Isaiah 63. And in Isaiah 63, the man's robes were red because he trod the winepress of the wrath of God and his enemies splattered on his coat. Isn't that what we saw? But here, the robe is red before... He goes to stomp out the wine press. Why? What blood is this thing dipped in? The guilty. Well, this is before he goes after the guilty. Good point, but this is... Jesus. Okay, listen, now listen. The word for dipped, by the way, in your Greek, uh, is the root word for baptized. So literally, it's, he's got a robe baptized in blood. Now, what is this referring to? Here's what it's referring to. Before Jesus goes out to fight the only just war that's ever been fought, he himself went and completely submerged himself in blood from head to toe. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Uh, Roman scourging. I don't know if any of you saw the movie. I don't commend it to you. It's pretty gruesome. But in Roman scourging... They would have uh, bone and metal things attached to something. They would tie you to a stake and they would just open up, literally open your back. There would literally not be any place in your back that was not turned inside out. And many times, sorry if this is a little bit gruesome, but I want you to understand this. People's organs would be exposed. Okay? People's organs would be exposed and lacerated. Many times these guys would die from the Roman scourging before you were even able to be crucified. You would die from the scourging alone. You'd go into hypovolemic shock, meaning you'd just lose your blood and you would bleed out from the scourging itself. To the point where the Romans decided they were going to get doctors to examine you and watch you so that they could cut it off before it got too bad so that they could have the joy of crucifying you. We're evil people. So when it talks about being baptized in blood, this was Jesus. And Jesus actually refers to the cross as a baptism in the Gospel of Matthew. 
So Jesus was taken and he was scourged. His back was literally open. Isaiah 52 says his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. Why? You know why? Here's why. Because Jesus told his Jewish friends that he was the ruler. Remember the question, who will rule? And his Jewish friend says, you're not going to rule over us. And they handed him over to the Romans. And the Romans were saying, you're not the ruler, Caesar's the ruler. So Good Friday is about humanity's ultimate answer to that question. Here's humanity's ultimate answer to the question of who will rule. There's Jesus, okay? And they put him in front of the Jewish people. And there's Barabbas over here and Jesus over here. Now, your, your, your translation says that Barabbas was a robber. In reality, the, the, the word actually means terrorist, basically, or freedom fighter. You were under Roman occupation if you were a Jew. And because of that Roman occupation, you had these guys called zealots who would pick up arms and fight the Roman government. And Barabbas was a well-known terrorist who would go and fight the Roman government. Well, they caught him in an uprising, and they were going to crucify him, obviously. So they put Jesus and Barabbas side by side. They said, which one do you want? Who will rule? And they said, give us Barabbas. Give us a dude who's actually going to go fight, man. Look at this guy. He's talking about healing people and be nice to your enemies. I saw him heal some Roman people. Get out of here. What Barabbas. All this mumbo-jumbo about loving your neighbor is not going to help us with the Romans. Give us Barabbas. And then Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. So what's the ultimate answer that humanity gives to who will rule? Here's the answer. Anybody but God. That's the answer. We will be ruled by drugs. We will be ruled by people. We will be ruled by governments. We will be ruled by government systems. We will be ruled by anything but God. This is humanity. And when the true ruler showed up, we beat him beyond human recognition. Please don't think for a moment that aside from the grace of God, if you were not there, you would not have taken part in this beating. You would have. This is what the scripture says about us. This is humanity. We want to rule so much. And we don't want to be ruled by anybody but ourselves. But if we can't rule ourselves, we will be ruled by anybody but God. This is human beings. So he's got a robe dipped in blood. He's got a robe baptized in blood. Now what does it say about God? That before he goes to execute justice on the nations and fight the just war... That before he does that, he says, no, Father, I'm going to go down there, and the way I'm going to fight is I'm going to get beaten beyond human recognition. You know, you know, in Hebrews, it says, a body you have prepared for me. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. When Jesus is speaking to the Father, he says, God, a body you have prepared for me. You prepared my body for what? To be torn to shreds. Now, why? Here's why. Because God is just and he's righteous. So he will bring final judgment on sinners. But hear, hear this. He doesn't like it. The scripture's clear. Now some of you Calvinists, I'm sorry. But the scripture's clear. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. And you know, it's, it was a will of the Lord to crush him. God had 
more delight in sacrificing himself than to inflict judgment on people. That's God's heart. That's what Revelation is showing us. It's showing us that, yes, Isaiah 63 is correct. He's going to go and judge the world for sure. But he took judgment on himself for everyone who would believe that God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. So how do I reconcile the guy carrying the lamb and the guy on the horse? It's the same guy. It's the same guy. And I'll tell you something. After Jesus died and rose from the dead, he went to his disciples and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's almost as if God says, we're not going to judge these people until we show the ultimate display of mercy. Then I will give them to you. Now, Psalm chapter 2 says something very interesting. It says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. So well, there's another conversation between the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son say, okay, yeah, there's this big question of who will rule. And the Father says, you, Jesus, you're going to rule. See, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is why I don't worry about politics. I'm not worried. You shouldn't be worried. God's already set his king on the throne. But here's the deal. There is essentially two camps in the world now. Now look, the, the, the folks who are following him, look at this. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, who's that? Who's that? Who are the armies of heaven on white horses? Us. Good. Good. Now, think about this. You've got this picture of this vast army, right? Everybody's wearing white. And then there's this one guy wearing red. May I follow that guy? I can follow that guy. And you know what? Everybody's wearing white because he was wearing red. Did you see that? The reason that we're cleansed, the reason that we're clean, the reason we can even follow him is because he wore that red robe on our behalf. He was baptized in blood so we can baptize you. Think about that. So now the armies of heaven are following him. And you will notice... It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads a wine press. Notice, the army is marching out, but who's fighting? Him. Who's executing judgment? Him. Are we the ones executing judgment? No. So we go to Planned Parenthood. Every Friday we say this, when, well, when we go. What we say to people is, look, man, we're not here to judge you. You know why? God is the judge. So our role as the army is to march forward with the message of the red robe and say, man, there's a guy, the red robe, tore his back open, pour his life blood out for you. He died for you. Honor him. Follow him. Get a robe, get a horse, let's go. Come with us. This is the gospel, by the way. If you're not a Christian, this is the gospel. Get a robe, get a horse, and follow Jesus, okay? The white robe means you're cleansed from all your sin. The horse means you're going in a certain direction. What's the direction? You're following him anywhere he takes you. You know, Tim, you know, Tim's been around the planet, okay? That's where Jesus takes him, all right? Some of you is going to take you to downtown Lewiston. Some of you is taking to your family. Just follow him. Wherever he's riding, you follow him. But man, we're not the ones that execute judgment. He's the one that executes judgment. 
Because he's the one that bore the wrath of God, so he's the one that executes judgment. Notice who Jesus is. He is the one that the Father has sent to execute judgment, and he's also the one that the Father has sent to distribute mercy. He's both. So before his robes become red with the blood of his enemies, his robes become red with his own blood for the sake of his enemies. And he turns them into friends. And are you cleansed from your sin? Yes, you trust Christ, you're cleansed from your sin. You know, I was talking to somebody today, it was about a very, very serious issue. He made just, just flippantly, I'm free, I don't care. You don't care. Now look, we ought to live in the freedom of what God did for us, man. Like we, you know, what does Romans 8 say? There's no condemnation. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, is raised to life, he's interceding for us. I don't want you, we shouldn't walk around in condemnation. But we also need to recognize there's a heavy price paid for us. So man, when I'm out there and I'm marching, I'm following Jesus, and we can't take that lightly. And we represent the guy in the red robes. We can't take that lightly. And a lot of times we take it lightly. Good Friday is about Jesus declaring that the kingdom of God has come. Our response to his declaration that God was king was we brutally murdered him. But here's the crazy part. In our rebellion, as we were murdering him and beating him beyond human recognition, he was paying for our very rebellion. Amen. Look at the genius of God. I don't, I don't know if we realize that God is very smart. That's a real smart thing to do is to take our rebellion and use it for our salvation. You know, some of you, you're running away from God and you're doing all this type of crazy stuff. He's going to get you. He's going to get you. He's a, he, Jesus is undefeated, I assure you. He wants you. He's going to have you. He's undefeated. Now my Armenian friends are mad at me. Good. All right. Now look. Now, now look. Uh, on his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, this is our Jesus. You know, they gave him a crown of thorns, and they were mocking him when they did it. But he still had a crown when he died. Even in their mockery, he still had a crown when he died. You know, Jesus never, ever, ever once stopped being the king. I hope you realize that. Amen. And then on top of that, you know, Pilate, his intention was to mock Jesus, right? And to mock the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Well, Pilate, that's kind of a, it's true, but it's incomplete. He's the king of the Jews, the king of everybody. Remember, he's got a lot of crowns, right? But Jesus never stopped being the king, ever. So you look at this glorious picture of Jesus, you go, yeah, that's the king. Man, he was the same king when he was crucified on the cross. He never stopped being king. And what does this show us? Hey, Christianity has the only humble God. We have the only God who has ever been humble. Because in his power, in his rulership as the king, he still submitted to that type of death. And that type of mockery. You heard Brian read it when they said, oh, you know, he's God's son. Let him come down from the tree. Yeah. You know, some of us can't even deal with somebody giving you the side eye. Get all emotional. You know, what this shows me is on a real, real practical level, man. Why do we feel entitled to so much respect 
Now look, I'm not telling you to walk around and let yourself get abused, okay? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you go from zero to 60 immediately when you get disrespected. Or when you feel dishonored. Man, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Notice it says, on his robe, that's written. On his robe and on his thigh. So that blood-soaked robe has that name, king of kings and lord of lords, written on it. Man, he was the king even when he was being crucified. And God in his sovereignty made sure that everybody still knew it. Their intention was to mock him, but God's intention was to say, that's my son, he's still the king. And then he shows us, all right, guys, listen, everybody's time is running out, right? Everybody knows this. This is a fact of the human experience. All of us are going to die. And all of us are going to look this man in the face one day. We're literally going to look this guy in the face. Amen. And here, here's a Christian message for you who are on your white horses following the red horse right here. here is, here's the message. We would love for you to march behind Jesus with us as he goes forward in this city and takes this city. There is grace for you at the cross. No matter what you have done, no matter who you have followed, no matter what other king you have set up in your life, there is grace for you, there is blood shed for you if you will have it. Be clean and follow Jesus. That's the message. Here's the warning. If you will not ride behind him, if you set yourself up against him, you're going to lose. That's a fact. That's plain truth. If you will not march behind him, if you come against him, he will break you. That's what the scripture said, Psalm chapter 2. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You know, I was reading uh, Lord of the, not Lord of the Rings. What's the other one? Yes, Lord. Chronicles of Narnia. And you know, it's got this scene where this girl runs into Aslan the lion. Now, Aslan the lion is a good guy. And he's good. And uh, she said, she said, hey man, like, are you dangerous? She, she, she doesn't know who Aslan is. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm dangerous. And she goes, well, you would hurt a child. So she said to the lion, you would hurt a child. And he says, well, I've eaten children. I've eaten men. I've eaten whole cities. Now this is, this is Aslan. He's a good guy. What is Lewis trying to communicate to us? He's just like Jesus. Good. In the sense that, man, yes. He's gracious, he's good, but he's also a God who judges. Now, here's the point. March with us, man. You know, we, look, we got, a big, we got a city out there, and everybody knows that Lewiston, especially downtown Lewiston, has some problems. We've got broken people, broken homes. Broken men, broken women, broken children. Amen. And the reason all of us are broken is because we want everybody to rule except for God. So here's my appeal to you. Join us. As we follow Jesus, get your sins forgiven. Trust in Jesus. Trust in what he did for us on the cross on Good Friday. Our king came to die for us so that we could have a place among those who are with him. Our job is not to go out and execute judgment. Our job is to proclaim that there is freedom and there is salvation and there is an actual direction in life to go.
join us. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you did for us, God. Thank you for your eyes and our flame of fire. That you know us, that you see through all of our fronts and craziness, God. And that you love us, God, with an intense, burning love that we can't even comprehend. God, help us to follow behind you, Jesus. God, help us to recognize that you are the true ruler in our lives. Help us to never take it for granted, God. Help us to accept you for who you truly are in all of your ways, God. Help me to read John 19 tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the sake of the city. For more resources, visit cell53.com.